This is The Political Scene, a weekly conversation with New Yorker writers and editors about politics. It's Friday, May 17th. I'm Dorothy Wickenden, executive editor of The New Yorker. On May 5th, the White House announced the deployment of a battleship carrier strike group and a bomber task force to the Middle East, a move that President Trump's national security advisor, John Bolton, described as sending a clear and unmistakable message to Iran. Bolton has been warning for 20 years about the threat posed by Iran to American interests in the region. On May 10th, another battleship joined the strike group alongside a battery of Patriot missile systems. This Wednesday, the State Department ordered the partial evacuation of the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad in response to Secretary of State Mike Pompeo's announcement that the administration had received intelligence of Iranian activity that may put American facilities and personnel at risk. In September 2018, a few months after joining the administration, Bolton had this to say. According to the mullahs in Tehran, we are the great Satan, lord of the underworld, master of the raging inferno. So I might imagine they would take me seriously that I, I, when I assure them today that if you cross us, our allies or our partners, you harm our citizens, if you continue to lie, cheat, and deceive, yes, there will indeed be hell to pay. But yesterday, President Trump sent a different signal, telling his acting defense secretary, Patrick Shanahan, that he doesn't want to go to war with Iran. Dexter Filkins joins me to discuss what to make of these developments and a U.S. foreign policy caught between the militant national security advisor and the isolationist president. Dexter, welcome. Thank you. So let's begin just by having you tell everyone how serious you think the current threat to U.S. interests in the region is. Has it, has it fundamentally changed in the past year or two? I don't think so. I mean, I, th- I think that First of all, we haven't seen we haven't seen the evidence. We we don't know what it is that that they have or what they claim to have. The reports are that we saw preparations, uh, missiles were were being loaded onto boats. Uh, there's been a couple of strange uh, moments, kind of unexplained. Uh, for instance, there were some mines that that hit some ships in off the coast of the United Arab Emirates. And then there was a drone, like a, a drone attack uh, that came from the Houthis in Yemen. They're supported by the Iranians uh, in, in Saudi Arabia, in the eastern province there. So there's been uh, some weird activity. So, so the, you know, the question really is, is all of this kind of frenetic American activity in response, is it, is it justified? So the Trump administration has called this a maximum pressure campaign, you know, through heavy sanctions and this use of uh, this show of force in the Persian Gulf. To what end? Do, do they want? Well, I guess it depends on who you ask. Absolutely. The administration has, the Trump administration made quite clear they're trying to cripple the Iranian economy. Uh, I, I think the word that, that was used for me uh, by somebody senior person in the White House involved in foreign policy was we're trying to collapse the economy. We think we can do that. We we think that's pretty easy, actually. They're, and they're pretty far along that, down that road. I think they are pretty far down that road. It's it's uh, They are strangling uh, 
Iran's oil exports, I think that at one point they were 2.6 million barrels a day. Now they're, they're at about 1 million. Uh, it's really, really hurting the economy. The inflation is way up. The GDP is contracting, I think, 6% so far this year. So they're really putting the pressure on the Iranian regime. The question is, what then? And does it, does it really go farther than that? The, in the conversations that I had, I, and I think this goes to the, the fundamental dichotomy. And this in, is for your piece, the piece that you recently did for The New Yorker on, yeah, on yeah. John Bolton. Yes. I, I think uh, in, in, as I reported my piece, the, there's a fundamental dichotomy inside the White House, which is uh, on one hand, you have uh, some very hardline people led by John Bolton. Uh, he, he, wants to, he wants to bring the regime down. On the other hand, you have the president. And, and I think the president... Uh, the president has sort of gone along with this with this pressure campaign, but I think that I think that's where he gets off the bus. Uh, he doesn't want to go farther than that. And I, I think he's made that. If if you remember last year, I think he sent or the White House sent eight messages to the Iranian President Rouhani uh, when when he was here in New York uh, for the United Nations General Assembly. Let's get together. Let's have dinner. Let's make a deal. You know, that's the kind of person that Trump is. He doesn't want to get bogged down in the Middle East. I think the the idea of American soldiers being killed on his watch is deeply disturbing to him. And he wants to make a deal with Iran, and he thinks he can. And as somebody told me in the piece was the main obstacle to negotiations uh, between the United States and Iran is is not the White House. It's the Iranian regime. It's the supreme leader. He doesn't want it. But And what about Rouhani himself, who always previously has been referred to as the you know so-called moderate? Well, I, th- I think what's happening now is what we can see is that the moderates, such as they are, um, they're being marginalized in- inside Iran because the, the pressure is, is so extreme uh, on-, on the Iranian regime that the idea of talking to America, negotiating with America, trusting America after uh, they-, they made the, Ira- uh, the nuclear deal with the Obama administration and then that was torn up by the Trump administration – Anybody who who had gone down that road and advocated kind of sitting down and dealing with America has been has been thoroughly discredited. And so, I think it's fair to say that that the Iranian line, the Iranian foreign policy towards the United States, is hardening as well. And that's what we've seen in the past couple of weeks. Are they still abiding by the nuclear agreement despite the administration's? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. You know, a, as you recall, the the Trump administration decided to unilaterally pull out of of the nuclear deal. Uh, the Iranians did not. They kind of just sat there very calmly uh, at the urging of the Europeans who said, just just don't break out of the agreement. And they, and they haven't w- wait so far. out, Wait out Trump. Wait out the Trump administration, hope for the best in 2020, and, and maybe we can kind of put this whole thing back together. Um, but I, I think the, the Iranian regime has essentially, it appears, they're, they're giving up that hope. Uh, and they have made it clear that they are going to move outside of the agreement. We're not sure exactly what yet. My guess is it'll probably be something pretty incremental uh, because they're, 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 they're afraid of John Bolton. You know, they're afraid of what the United States will do. And particularly because, I mean, in some ways, because the message that's coming out of the White House is so confusing. It's so ambiguous. Do they want to attack us? Do they want to make a deal? Like what they can't predict what the United States is going to do. But I think I think it's absolutely clear that as the American approach is hardened, the Iranian approach is hardening as well. This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, I'll talk with our Washington correspondent about the many political battles being waged in the Capitol over how to deal with the coronavirus. You couldn't imagine a president personalizing a crisis with a virus, but somehow that's, that's where we are. 
Susan Glasser. This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. So Bolton was Undersecretary of State for Arms Control and International Security when the Bush administration invaded Iraq. You covered that war, and you recently wrote this profile uh, for The New Yorker about Bolton. What role did he play specifically in the decision to invade? Well, as as far as I could tell, Bolton did not play a large role in kind of publicly pushing for war and kind of banging the drum uh, that Saddam had, you know, nuclear, chemical, biological weapons. Um, and, th- and that may have been in part because Secretary of State Colin Powell didn't really trust him and didn't really want him around and didn't and frankly was was wary of of the war itself. However, uh, as I was reporting my story, there was one extraordinary incident. Um, it's a little complicated, but uh, there is a uh, it's called the Convention for Chemical Weapons. It's signed by virtually every country in the world. But at the time, not Iraq, not Saddam Hussein's Iraq. And so I interviewed the, the head of the convention at the time, Jose Bustani, and it, he said that he had been close to or he'd been negotiating with the Iraqi government to sign on to the Chemical Weapons Convention, which would automatically uh, essentially allow independent inspectors to go in and find out if the Iraqis had chemical weapons. And he was getting closer to this. He'd secured their agreement, he told me. Uh, and then one day uh, in, in Brussels, um, uh, John Bolton showed up in his office and said he'd been sent there by Vice President Dick Cheney and, you know, closed the door and sat down and he said, we want you to resign. And Bustani refused, he told me, and then said, I think the really shocking thing, Bolton threatened my family. Um, he said, uh, you know, we, we know where your wife lives. We know where your sons are. We know where your daughter is. We want you to resign. Bolton uh, does deny this story. He does. Uh, the, the, I found Bustani to be very credible. Uh, the Bolton left and then the United States, the White House, um, orchestrated uh, Bustani's removal. Uh, so, so those inspections never happen. So it's a pretty, pretty striking moment there. You have another good uh, quote in the piece by Lawrence Wilkerson, who was Colin Powell's chief of staff, and he told you everyone knew that Bolton was Cheney's spy inside the State Department. Yeah, yeah it, it, it's it's clear. I think that that Bolton was forced on Colin Powell at the at the State Department. Um, you you got to take him, and they didn't want him, and he caused a lot of problems when he was there. What's Bolton's relationship now with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo? I think I think on on this question on Iran, I think they're pretty united. I, I think what's remarkable right now in the Trump administration is you have a lot of there's a lot of open space in foreign policy. You know, we we don't have a permanent Secretary of Defense. We don't have a Secretary for Homeland Security. We don't have uh, an ambassador to the United Nations. Foreign policy is kind of wide open. So it it's uh, it's basically Bolton and Pompeo. I think they're they're pretty united on Iran, and so the, I think the picture that emerges over the past couple of weeks is Bolton and Pompeo together, are kind of pushing this very hardline policy against Iran, and Trump's not really paying attention, uh, sort of signing off on it, and then this week, as we saw, kind of President Trump clued in. Uh, he didn't like what he saw. And he doesn't like the reporting about it either, which makes it seem as though he is not driving American foreign policy. Bolton is. And that's always a dangerous position to be in as an advisor to the president, as we've seen. I, I think it's pretty clear there's some tension there. Uh, and, and, you know, Trump, Trump has gotten sick of and rid of uh, so many of the people around him that 
you have to wonder whether whether Bolton is not uh, is is now falling uh, into that same category. Let's talk about North Korea. Um, just a couple of months before Bolton entered the White House in April 2018, he called for a preemptive war with North Korea, saying that we we needed to attack before it was too late. But President Trump just then was preparing for his summit with Kim Jong-un in Vietnam. So again, this is an example where they're totally at odds. Pulls apart. I mean, it's, it's remarkable when you think about it. Bolton has been calling for preemptive strikes on North Korea. Um, and and he, he signs up with an administration that is essentially just like Iran, really, I think, ultimately wants to make a deal. And so there's this really striking moment where the president goes to Hanoi. Uh, to meet the North Korean leader, to kind of sit down and talk about this. With John Bolton, John Bolton sits down at the table with him. And for the past 20 years, Bolton has been chortling at, (laughs) dismissing, ridiculing any American president or diplomat who did precisely the same thing. And there Bolton was at the table. So uh, let's talk briefly about Syria. During Bolton's first week in office, I believe, Bashar al-Assad's regime dropped chemical weapons into the suburbs of Damascus. What were the internal administration deliberations about how to respond? That must have been, you know, hair-raising from from Bolton's pers- well, from everyone's perspective. But did Bolton have any effect on how we responded? Well, what what struck me uh, and what what has really turned out, I think, to be quite remarkable was that the at the time, um, and this was May of last year, Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis was still in the job. What emerged as I reported the piece was that was that Mattis uh, was slow walking and ignoring and just kind of refusing uh, any number of orders and requests from the White House that, that he thought were too provocative or potentially causing some in- instability or the threat of war. And so what happened in this case was when Assad used chemical weapons, uh, the, the White House immediately put in a request and said, give us some options for military responses. You know, give, give us a range of options. What did Mattis do? He sent one option to the White House. Here's, here's your option. And that, and that with like a couple of modifications was essentially what they did. So you could see what Mattis was doing. Mattis was worried about, he's worried about Bolton. He was worried about the dynamic inside the White House. Uh, is this thing going to get out of control? Are they going to go too far? I'm not going to let them do it. Let's talk about the Western Hemisphere. Bolton has <laughs> called Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela the troika of tyranny. But in Venezuela, as in North Korea, the administration's strategies haven't worked exactly the way Trump would have liked them to. It's really strange. I, I went with Bolton to Coral Gables, Florida, just a couple weeks ago. And he gave this kind of, uh, you know, podium-pounding speech about the Troika of Terror and about regime change in Venezuela. And, and this was kind of as uh, Juan Guaido, the, the opposition leader in Venezuela, was kind of – he appeared to have the momentum. He appeared to have the military on his side and kind of the, the, the White House was kind of – you know, they're pretty four square behind him, uh, urging him on. And then nothing happened. And so I think we've <laughs> – we've, uh, they moved on from that. But, uh, but I think— Trump hasn't moved on, though. Your reporting and other reporting shows that he was really pissed off, that they pushed it very hard and then they, f- they failed what they were— To me, what's interesting about, uh, about Venezuela and, and what was interesting about, in particular, about the trip that I took with Bolton uh, down to South Florida was when watching Bolton up there in front, of the, in front of a group of Cuban exiles and kind of pounding the table and, you know, railing against the Cuban regime— and, and the Venezuelan regime and Nicaragua, it, it felt like a campaign speech. 
uh, for 2020. That's what it felt like. It, it, it seemed to me to be more about domestic politics than about foreign policy, and, and which is unusual for a national security advisor. But, but I think you have to look ahead and you have to think, look at Florida. Florida is going to be crucial as it always is. It's going to be really close as it always is. And there are a million and a half uh, Venezuelans and Cubans and Nicaraguans in, in Florida. It's a crucial constituency. And so when they go down and pound the table and say, the drug of terror, we're going we're gonna to do regime change, by and large, that community in Florida loves it. They love to hear it. And so that's what it felt like to me. It was like, wasn't really a foreign policy speech. It was a campaign speech. So what do we know about Patrick Shanahan? He had, Trump has uh, nominated him uh, to be his secretary of defense. Where is he likely to fall in these debates? It's, he's kind of unknown on this. You know, he, he came from the private sector. He came from the airline industry. He didn't, didn't come from the Pentagon itself or didn't come from the military. So he's, he's, he's kind of unknown here. He's still acting. He hasn't been confirmed by the Senate yet. He's been nominated. Um, so it's kind of unclear. I, my sense is that as somebody who was and is close to Secretary Mattis, uh, he was Mattis's deputy in the Pentagon. I think there's a probably a wariness there of the White House uh, at, at in, in, in much the same way that there was under Mattis. I think the question, the really crucial question, is how strong Shanahan can be in resisting the, some of the pressures that he's come under and that he will come under in the Pentagon in the way that Mattis did. Can he stand up to the White House in, in the way that Mattis did. And I think so far, the evidence suggests, you know, probably not. He's, he doesn't quite have the, have the stature and the heft that Mattis had. Thanks so much, Dexter. Thank you. Dexter Filkins is a staff writer at The New Yorker and the author of The Forever War. This has been The Political Scene. You can subscribe to this and other New Yorker podcasts by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app and find more political analysis and commentary on newyorker.com. Feel free to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Our theme music is by Russell Gillespie. This program is produced by Alex Barron for newyorker.com with assistance from Kylie Warner. I'm Dorothy Wickenden. <laughs>